Hello and welcome to the History of Voting podcast. It's brought to you by One Nation Every Vote, a nonpartisan group sharing the stories of why voting matters and how your vote can make a difference. In this podcast, we're going to take you through the history of how our democracy has operated as a democracy, when it has been fully democratic, when it hasn't been fully democratic, what it, the first votes cast by colonists uh, were like, how voting might look like in the future. And we're going to be diving into the fundamental mechanism of our system of government, which is the vote that we now consider the right of every citizen. In this episode, we're going right back to the start. We're going back to the start of the country and even to the colonial era. What did voting look like in America before there was the United States of America? How did voting get affected by the revolution? What happened in the immediate years after the revolution? And one of the reasons we're starting here is that it was never as simple as we may have been taught in school, even at the beginning. And, and that's going to be a running theme of this podcast, by the way, is that voting and the right to vote and the access to the vote has always been more complicated than we might think. So just for one example, to kick us off, here's the story of one election. It was in Essex County, New Jersey, in 1797. At the time, there was a fierce fight between the Federalists, the party of President John Adams at the time, and Alexander Hamilton, and the Democratic Republicans, whose national leaders were Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Now, in this election in Essex County, New Jersey, the polls were open for two days. On the second day, it looked like the Democratic Republicans were leading and that they might win. So the Federalists responded with what politicians have done anytime they think they're going to lose. They started to get out the vote. As recounted by historians Judith after Klinghoffer and Lois Elkis, they sent carriages into the country to bring out the farmers. They were obliged to beg them, even to treat them. So indifferent are the people to their privileges. And that means that they, they bought the vote of farmers with cheap drinks. In spite of all their efforts, they received news that the opposing party was prevailing. In this extremity, they had recourse to the last expedient. It was to have women vote. Yes, in New Jersey, from 1776 to 1807, women, though only unmarried women and widows with enough property, could vote. They didn't vote that often. They were seen as not honorable to ask to vote, as that passage shows, but they could vote. And it illustrates the fact that when this country was founded, voting did not have a universal set of principles or practices. It was a patchwork of local traditions whose differences and evolution show what the earliest phases of our democracy was like. Now, to explore this issue more, I'm joined by Professor Ed Countryman of Southern Methodist University and a winner of the Bancroft Prize for his book, A People in Revolution. Ed, thanks for being with me today. It's my pleasure. So just to begin, uh, where did voting in America come from? Was it directly out of the English parliamentary system transplanted into the United States, or was it something new or different in how it evolved in the earliest years? Both. Um, <clears throat> for the record, there was voting in the Spanish world, too, but I don't want to go into that. But we're dealing with people who had come from England, where voting and liberty went together, where Parliament was highly valued as a check upon the king, and where there was a significant, although not a huge, electorate. So without doubt, when the English settlers set up elected assemblies, they were drawing on what they already knew from English experience. As for changes during the colonial period, uh, the biggest one that I can think of is that because of the way the property was held, far more people, that is white males, no question, could vote than could vote in England. The whole system was very idiosyncratic. The rules that held in Virginia did not hold in Massachusetts and so forth. 
the English system that they came from, how much did those votes matter? I mean, I remember learning at school about the civil war between King Charles and Parliament. Um, and so certainly there was some relevance to the parliamentary elections then. But it it was 100 years later, 50 years later, when, before England had what would be described as a prime minister with Robert Walpole in the 1720s and 30s. So when the colonists came to America in the 1600s, were they really electing people that that mattered or were they electing you know, your local sheriff? Yeah. But the true government, the true levers of power were being appointed by the king. Well, again, it's going to vary. The governors in royal counties, sorry, in royal colonies were appointed by the crown. And that was true right through until the end of the British regime in, in, in the 1770s. If you were living in Pennsylvania or, I guess, Maryland for a while, the governor was not appointed by the crown, but rather by the proprietor, who was almost like a feudal lord. If you're living in Connecticut or in Rhode Island, the colony was self-contained and people elected their own governors, even in the colonial period. That just continued on after the revolution. So one more time, there is no uniformity. Don't even expect it. It's a crazy quilt. And within that, were there some states that had what we would consider political parties? Well, first colonies, because they're not states yet. Oh, sorry. Not about that. Yeah. But yes, certainly there were factions and there were open divisions and there was fierce competition in some places. In New York, which I know best because I wrote a book about it, it was mostly family-based, although there were larger interests, ethnic and religious Presbyterians did not like Anglicans and that kind of thing. In Pennsylvania, it could be wide open and wild and worthy of anything that's going on now. So I know of a, a, a colonial era election in Pennsylvania where the Presbyterians were vilified as piss And that kind of thing did happen. Down south, where it's more genteel, you were less likely to get that kind of raucousness. But from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts, absolutely, it could be wide open. Was this a mirror of the Whig and Tory divisions in England? I know that by the revolution, most of the revolutionary leaders were Whigs and the loyalists were considered Tories. So uh, was that did that emerge at, around the same time or was that kind of layered on by writers who were comparing what was happening in America to the mother country of England? Well, I don't know the word Tory being used too much in the colonial period. What it really meant in England was a pro-crown, not concerned about parliament, regarding parliament as a problem and a bunch of rotten people. Does that sound familiar or what? It got, that word got appended to loyalists during the revolution, and I couldn't tell you exactly when it came into use. I guess I could do some research, but we don't want that. There's a continuity in this sense, that the English had a common division between what they called court and what they called country. Court meant in the pocket of the king or the king's ministers. Country meant virtuous people from somewhere out in the shires who are not going to be corrupted by London. And that certainly... That, that, that language was brought over to the British colonies, and in that suspicion on the part of a lot of country folks of people who live in cities persists to the present day. Was there a difference in some states that had that city and state uh, or city and colony overlap? Because uh, I'm from Massachusetts, and we're taught about the Boston Tea Party, which seems like something out of uh, revolutionary Paris, where a group of people came together. They had a bit of a riot or a mob, whatever whichever side you you want to use the propaganda from. And they went and they did some physical action against the government, which could happen in a city. It's hard to gather that amount of people in the country. So was there a, was that a reason you think that 
political action was a bit more heated in a state like Massachusetts just because you had the concentration of people next to the seat of government? Well, if we're talking about the revolution in Massachusetts, in New York, in Pennsylvania, the cities are in the lead as the, as the crisis with Britain deepens and gets wider and gets worse. Further south in Virginia, it's not so, partly because they don't have any cities. Of course, they've got a very different voting system as well, much less raucous, much more under control of the local elite. Elections held openly, you raise your hand or sign up to put your name down on behalf of the candidate whom you're, in, whom you're endorsing, which means you're in his pocket. You're, you are this guy's, it's like declaring yourself as liege man, you know, yes, fine, I'll vote for you. Very well, sir, I shall travel, treasure that vote for the rest of my life, which means come back and I'll do your favors. And so there was a bit more of a patron-client relationship in southern states. Yes, although there was something of that in, <clears throat> especially in New York as well. An example, you may have heard of Sir William Johnson, who administered British Indian affairs until the very eve of the revolution. He lived on a large estate where there were tenant farmers, and he actually had slaves too. And at an election sometime early in the 1770s, I think several hundred people were eligible to vote, meaning his tenants and neighbors. And only five people actually did vote because Sir William called the shops. He decided who was going to be the judge, the sheriff, and all the rest of it. And everybody knew that. So it's a bit like we had our own rotten boroughs. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. In New York, or to take another example of it, most people wouldn't know this, but at Parliament at the time, Oxford and Cambridge universities had their own representatives in Parliament, including Sir Isaac Newton at one point. William and Mary had the same. It had its own seat in Virginia's House of Burgesses. Harvard did not. Brown did not. Yale did not. So it's, it's again, this uneven quilt of craziness. Was there a need uh, or was there a drive by some to make it more of a rational voting system? Or was it just accepted that this is how we do it? This is how we've always done it. And there, there's no requirement for a secret ballot. There's no requirement for districts to be drawn evenly. And it's just uh, that wasn't an issue back in the colonial era. Can I be like Winnie the Pooh and say both? Sure. <laughs> in the colonial period, the general attitude was we have inherited this and what we want to preserve is what we have inherited. The revolution marks a big break. And as the states are forming their new polities, their new institutions, there's a lot of debate about what ought to be represented in terms of maybe property or maybe communities like in Massachusetts, each town in New York, the counties are somehow supposed to be corporate or maybe extra representation. Well, this is going to come with the Constitution for the people who've got a particular form of property, meaning slaves. Key point is that during the revolution, this debate goes on from north to south and there is expansion of voting. And there is, there are attempts to rationalize the units of representation, and the beat goes on. One of the more interesting books about this era is called uh, William Cooper's Town, which is about Cooperstown, New York. Yep, Alan Taylor. And sure. it, what I was amazed at, as I, I read it recently, thinking it was going to be, you know, this kind of fun story about a, a young man named William Cooper who went into the New York wilderness and started a town. And it was that at the beginning, there was some interesting business sense of how he got the town started and, and how he got access to the international markets for all their goods. But a lot of it in the mm -hmm. later era was him trying to effectively gerrymander the representation there because he wanted to be a state senator and then a U.S. congressman. So they kept changing how people were elected. At one point, it was multi-member district. 
where I think it was the top mm-hmm. three got elected. And other times they were at district levels. They changed the dates mm-hmm. of it. They changed how long the uh, the voting was. It seems as if there there just wasn't any real idea that, you know, we need to get as many people to vote. It seemed like it was um, yeah, inheriting a local tradition and we can play around with it as we wish. Right. And first of all, that book is terrific. It's the only one that I know of that's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the third of the major prizes, whose name I cannot recall. Second, when Alan was writing that book, Alan Taylor, the author, when he was writing that book, he published an article that began to explore the issues we're talking about. And it was called, quote, The Art of Hook and Snivy, S-N-I-V-E-Y. Those names say everything. Was there rigging? Of course. It, even though ballot boxes are being used, are the ballots handed out by the candidates for the different by different opposing candidates? Sure. Are the paper colors different? Yes. So that you can see which color is going in and you know how so-and-so voted. So it's just as much a matter of manipulating as goes on now. And and who could vote? So obviously uh, African-Americans and slaves couldn't vote, but women could vote in New Jersey from uh, 1776 to 1807, which is not something I knew until I started researching for this episode. Uh, very yep. few actually did, but it was they mm-hmm. wrote their constitution to say all inhabitants can vote, which included women, and a few did. Yep. Was there what was the attitude to gender at this time? Because in New Jersey, if women can vote but they don't, but sometimes you use them, but you're supposed to be ashamed that you had to resort to getting women's votes. Uh, was the sense that this is something a vote should represent a person or a household. And and how did that play into the role of gender in our, our, our political system back then? Absolutely. And that's one of the great big questions. There are so many. First of all, you're right that the word inhabitants is the key here. And I think that just slipped into the Constitution. I don't think anybody had any intentions of opening the vote up to black people or to or to women. Secondly, you had to have property to vote. You couldn't just do it no matter who you were, at least at that point. This is true in New Jersey. Thirdly, a married woman did not have the vote. A widow who had the property would, and an unmarried woman, you know, a, a, what they called a spinster would if she was of age. But somebody who was caught within curvature, the, you know, the doctrine that the woman submerges herself in the man, no, she's not going to be able to vote. It's interesting in 1807 when New Jersey did get rid of it. Well, yes, they got rid of both. There's an assertion of white male power against black people of both genders, if they had the property, and against women who were daring to vote. And it's not going to surface again or it's not going to come alive again as a public debated issue until well into the 19th century. And so should we kind of in looking back and trying to understand the the mentality of people back then, there was a sense that government was not for the people, but it was for the people that were supposed to matter. You know, and, and even those who didn't own property, they, they existed, but they didn't matter in terms of how the government should function. Well, one more time, this depends on who you're talking to. I know, I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite a fan of Alexander Hamilton. I've worked on quite hard on him, and I know the musical pretty well. Don't ask me how I do know it, but I do know it. And, you know, he certainly believed that the elite ought to be the ones in charge. Jefferson did in a sense, too, but they did have different ideas about how you found the elite. For Jefferson, you're going to find them by a system of, of continuing education who can hack it 
eventually at William & Mary or at the University of Virginia who cannot. And for Hamilton, it's much more a matter of being born into a world of families and connections and without doubt, using manipulation and organization to keep the dirty, the people with the calluses on their hands and the mud on their boots out of office. I could give you quotations on that one. So key point one more time is that during the revolution, this whole issue of who gets represented and how they get represented and what's the relationship between the representatives, the people with temporary power and the people outside, that is a huge subject of discussion, no question about it. Going back to William Cooper's book, I remember that was one of the things that really struck me. I, I remember reading in history class about how the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans differed on the size of government or government intervention in the economy. But mm -hmm. in that book, it, it's expressed it much more as the Federalists were the ones that said the well-to-do, the elite, the deserving should be in mm -hmm. charge. And the Democratic yep. Republicans mm -hmm. were the incipient Democrats that the people should rule whoever the people might be, of course. I mean, that, that's part yeah. of the paradox of it, that, you know, we the people, that's a wide open concept. Who on earth belongs to we the people? That's one of the major debates. Well, really to the present day. And not just in the United States. I was uh, uh, re reading uh, once about, uh, or I was listening to a great podcast about uh, revolutionary France. Uh, it's called Revolutions by Mike Duncan. Just give him a plug. But they actually had in France the idea of active and passive citizens where you were yep. classified either a citizen that was involved in the government or a citizen mm -hmm. that was passive and didn't get involved. And even though we in the U.S. didn't have that explicitly, we those words, we clearly had that concept of some yep. people are involved and some people just take orders from their superiors. Yes, absolutely. And then there are other people who say, oh, no, you don't. Oh, I'm, I'm suspicious of you, Mr. Highfalutin person. And I don't believe that your, your fine words about this and that actually mean anything at all. I think you're in it for yourself. And so thinking back to, because this was the colonial era, the revolutionary era, what were the things that started to make this change where we we can look from the revolutionary to what happened afterwards and say, oh, that's why it started to evolve into whatever the next era would be. Well, first of all, the revolution marks a great big break. It's not the case that things just glided insensibly from the old to the new, that's a John Adams phrase, but rather that there is a large rupture of institutions and relationships and ideas, and people begin to think for themselves. And there's a famous quote, you may have heard it in your, in your college classes, by a guy called Governor Morris in Revolutionary New York, who said, the mob begin to think and to reason. Poor reptiles, I could take it further, but that gets the attitude. And by, it, by the 1780s and 1790s, there is a lot of insistence on people whose names are not famous or by people whose names are not famous that this republic is ours and we are going to have a share in it. And we absolutely believe that the power needs to be in the hands of people like ourselves. And then there are people who think both. John Adams thinks that the lower house in the Massachusetts Assembly <coughs> excuse me, should be an exact mirror of the people out of doors. The upper house, the Senate, should be something quite different. So one more time, there's a lot of discussion back and forth swirling around, even about belonging to a republic. And then when it becomes democratic, well, it's time for Alexis to talk, though, isn't it? But that's somebody else's chance to talk. So is it true that moving from the revolution to the next era, we open up the United States to a more democratic uh, system of government? Yes, it's true. And by the middle of the 19th century, even by the third quarter, second quarter of the 19th century, the great French sociologist 
Alexis de Tocqueville could describe democracy in America in 900 very, very long pages. But it's also the case that as democracy opens up in terms of who can vote and who can hold office and what's the relationship between the people who are in office and the people who are out of it, as that's opening up among among white males, it's closing off for people who are not white, not male or both. Well, that is a great segue into our next episode, uh, which next week will be on the Jacksonian era in America and the voting systems there. So first of all, thank you very much uh, for your time, Professor, and uh, all the best. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Thanks again to Professor Ed Countryman of Southern Methodist for speaking with us. If you're interested in getting more involved with voting and the electoral process, there are a lot of organizations you can join. Today, we're recommending TurboVote. It's a nonpartisan site that helps you register to vote, reminds you when elections are happening, and even helps you apply for an absentee ballot. You can find it at TurboVote.org. Now, if you like today's episode, please give us a five-star rating, tell your friends, share the links. It all helps with the popularity of the podcast, but we also hope with the mission of 1V, which is to remind people just how important our vote can be and why we should use it. The producer for today's episode was Eve Gleason. I'm Chris Oates. Thanks for listening, and please check back in next week when we tackle one of the most contentious eras in early America, the Jacksonian era.